Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. With us today is Mark Efron. He's the founder and president of Talent Strategy Group, where he leads the firm's global consulting, education, executive search, and publishing businesses. He uh, puts out a, a magazine called Talent Quarterly that I've, I've been in or my writing has been in, and so I know him from that. Also from his books and his most recent book, Eight Steps to High Performance, Focus on what you can change, ignore the rest has come out. I just read it and I'm really happy to have him on the show. Mark, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you, Peter. Thrilled to be here and looking forward to our chat. Thanks. So, Mark, you say up front, anyone can be a high performer. Is that really true? Anyone can increase their performance. That um, sounds and, more and, like it's true. And, and as we talk about in the book, um, what matters is understanding what you can control and what you can't because it's really easy to to say, well, I'm not smart enough to do that, or I don't have the right behavior. Great, there's a lot of stuff we can't control, and we can double-click into that later in the conversation. But what I lay out in the book is, here's what you can control, and here's what the science says you should do to actually control it. Right. So there are so many books. I mean, I, I you, you get them, I'm sure, also. I get them sent to me all the time. There's like a million books with like seven, six, four, five, eight, you know, to be a better person, leader. but and, and so we all read them. They're all out there. And I would love for you to make your case, like, what's different about this for you? Like, why did you, because you, you, you didn't waste your time writing this book and it's a good book. So what's your voice that you want to have in here? Sure. Um, this is in my mind, this is a double click from my last book. Uh, and I'll bring you on a brief story around that. So my the first book I put out was called One Page Talent Management. And it was really written for HR. It was kind of a wonky book. Well, we thought it was a wonky book. Uh, essentially saying the science tells you a lot of what you should do to manage talent well in HR. Mm -hmm. But science is kind of difficult to understand. We've translated it into more plain English. Do this, this, and this. Right. And fortunately, a lot of folks read the book. A lot of folks did what's in the book. But – not everyone read the book, and not everyone did what was in the book. And I thought, what's a shorter path to get this done? Well, what would direct-to-consumer look like? Well, direct-to-consumer would be, let's just write for it to the average Jill or Joe manager out there and say, if you want to be a higher performer at work, here's what the science says. Here's right. that science translated into a, a really easy-to-understand format and, and lots of tools and tips to help you make it work. So the difference in... This book versus all the other stuff that you and I both see, hopefully, is the science is rock solid. You saw lots of sites in that book. Mm -hmm. um, but the sites are there in kind of the background. Hey, trust me, we've done our research. I read more than 2,000 academic articles writing that book, sorted through what, was, what were the most conclusive, but then translating that to the, the few things that matter. So... Kind of why eight? Well, because when you work with your publisher, they say, put numbers in your title, it sells more, and so you end up with a number. But um, the eight are also the most conclusive. If you kind of stack ranks, all the stuff we know about performance from science, right. these are the eight that have the largest impact. 
So we're going to go into each of these, but before we do, I want to say two things. One is, and say one thing, ask your question. One is you say eight, but it's actually faster than that because it's seven. Because your eighth is really like, just stop thinking about anything else except what I've just told you. So like, you know, which, and I like that chapter. But the, so, so the second, this is my question is, I hear you and there are a lot of citations and there's a lot of science in this book. And yet everybody... Like you, 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 in in the eighth step, you debunk a lot of myths, right? You say, for example, let's just take one. You buck the strengths trend. Like, yeah, there's all this stuff for Gallup, but really, no, you focus on your weaknesses, not just your strengths. And, you know, I had Marcus Buckingham on the show. And every time we talked, he's like, there's all this research and there's all this science behind this. And what I have found, and I'm sure it frustrates listeners and it frustrates me, is you can have two people who really hold science behind them and talk about studies and this and that, and they're in total contradiction with each other. And so how do you straighten this out? Talk to, you're talking about writing this yeah. for the average Joe. How do we help people clarify you know, the science backing two totally opposing perspectives? Well, some people will think that was a setup question. So on the Marcus Buckingham front, um, I'm a big fan of folks discussing and debating ideas. If you believe in your perspective, you should be willing to back that up in a discussion. So I issued last week a call to Marcus and his co-author, Ashley Goodall, to debate their fairly controversial views around feedback. They came out with an HBR cover story, I don't know, five or six months ago, and it said right. feedback isn't necessary, you know, harmful, toxic, etc., and a lot of folks in the, the IO psychology community were none too happy to hear those remarks. They said, you are so far off base, you've selectively picked out science. And I thought, you know what? I'm a big fan of it. Let's get people in a room and discuss it. So I put out an invitation to Goodall and Buckingham a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we'll be sending a big email out about it saying, we will sponsor from our magazine, Talent Q, we'll sponsor an open debate. Uh, you discussing against two other folks who think feedback is valuable. We'll do it for charity. We'll you know 20 bucks each to save the children. Um, they won't respond to our invitation. Right. And so my view is if you believe, then you back your ideas up. Right. So I think that's part of the challenge is there's a lot of folks who say things like there's research. Well, I'll st I start with the hardcore academic science meta analyses um, so we're not cherry picking, oh, this lady did an experiment here. Oh, that person, you know, here's a little McKinsey research all mixed all together and alchemy and come up with. So my view is, yeah, there's probably some views that we could simply say, hey, Peter's got some facts he believes in. Mark has some facts he believes in. Yeah, you know, that, that's fair. There are other times where I think people are trying to sell stuff and they're making up or cherry picking science to do it. Right. Got it. OK, let's go through. Thank you for that. Let's go through um, the description of each of these steps and just like, you know, I, I'm going to ask you some questions around them, but let's just get an overview of like, what are these eight steps? We've already sort of said what the last step is, which is stop following anyone else's steps. But <laughs> what are the, so, you know, let's start with the first, what are the first uh, seven steps? That we can get sure. Through? Let's start with the first one. And do you want me to kind of list or do you want me to, to do a little brief description for Let's each? do a brief description of each. Okay. Let's start with set big goals. Step number one, set big goals. Why is the number one step? Because the science says the single most powerful thing you can do as an individual to increase your performance is set big goals. And that might sound pretty obvious. Great, Mark, I hear that all the time. Every New Year's Eve, it's about resolutions and everything else. 
The question, though, is, well, what does that look like when you do it well? How do you make it practical? And in chapter one, I really blow out, okay, if you're going to do that, especially in a corporate environment, mm-hmm. here's how to do that. Here's how to go from a list of tasks and activities, which a lot of folks consider goals, to what are the few big promises you're going to make to your organization during the year? Right. So step one, set big goals. So now I've seen research. In fact, I've written an article about this where about goals and setting goals. And there was like, and maybe I'm wrong here, so I'm going to... Let's 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 have this conversation for two minutes. When I looked at a bunch of research, I could see where there's there's usefulness for goals, but there's also a lot of danger with setting goals. And so there's this study, there's this Harvard study where where you know that everybody talks about. I, you didn't talk about it in your book, but everybody talks about it, which is which by the way is a good thing that you didn't talk about in your book. Where you know this Harvard class of whatever is all set out. You know they they divided the class of the people who set goals and they didn't set goals. And, you know, 40 years later, everybody who set goals is worth, you know, the, the whatever it was, 10% of the class that set the goals is worth more than the 90% of the class that didn't, blah, 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 right? And people talk about it all the time. And I looked into it, and it turns out that study doesn't exist, and that it never happened, that it's like, like it's some urban myth that one person started and everybody else is quoting. And, and then you also have these situations where, you know, people have really strong goals, like... Volkswagen to sell cars, and there's such an intense pressure to achieve those big goals that they end up doing things that you know are unethical or difficult, or 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 they run into a lot of trouble pursuing mm-hmm. those goals at the exclusion of everything else. Sure. So I'm just wondering, like, what your thoughts are around those things. Sure. So let's start with science. I always start with science. Science is unbelievably clear. Goals drive results. What kind of start there? Almost. If there's anything you can't argue with in, in human performance, goals drive better results. They focus the mind. They, they drive extra effort, et cetera, et cetera. Now, can you screw that up? Yeah, you can screw that up. Uh, to your point, you can give Volkswagen incentives to, to, uh, to hide pollution. Doesn't mean that goals always end up with a good result. Uh, they can end up with a very bad result. Um, but you'll probably end up with that bad result more faster and more powerfully than if you had not set a goal to, to screw that up. Goal setting is going to get you to a bigger and uh, and more powerful result. Obviously, it needs to be set in the right direction. There's a Pareto optimal point for that. Right. Um, if you're exhausting people, um, if you're not incentivizing people the right way, then yeah, those goals aren't going to work. Right. But my view is, in most cases, that's not the challenge that we're facing. In most cases, the challenge that we're facing is that people don't have a few big, powerful, aligned goals. Great. Step two, behave to perform. Behave to perform. So when you dig into the research around behaviors, one of the interesting things you find is the stereotypical model of the perfect leader around you're generous and you know your team and you give lots of feedback is one way to manage but the science would say, actually, there's a few other ways that deliver results just as well. Uh, and we talk about, I talk about this in the book, this performance driving leader. Uh, there's the great research project, it looked at our science, um, it looked at private equity managers, and it looked at recruiting private equity CEOs. Mm-hmm. And they assessed a large group of private equity CEOs, and uh, they set to basically in two uh, two areas. One is more performance driving areas, sets big goals, drives their staff hard, blah blah blah. One is more kind of I'll call it softer, you know, drives engagement, gives you know positive feedback. And they looked at success or failure of private equity CEOs. And unfortunately, what it said was, well, the CEOs who are most effective are the ones who don't really care about the people stuff and just drive results. 
Now, I'm not saying that's an optimal model, but I am saying, well, that's proof that there's more than one model, kind of that stereotypical view of the right way to manage. So two points I make in that chapter. One is there are multiple ways to manage, and I, I call out specifically what they are and how to apply them. Right. The other point is, and it, back to the Buckingham, don't focus on your strengths. There is no worse strategy for moving up an organization than to keep doing the things that you do well today because you're going to need to do things fundamentally different to move up the ladder in your organization. And what I point out is that there's a ton of science around the fact that it's our derailments that are going to stop us moving up in an organization, not that our strengths aren't powerful enough. So let me ask you a question about the derailers, because you, you, you talk about the derailers, you list 11 of them, and I look at all those 11, and I'm like, you know, I do, some, I do all of this some of the time, right? Yeah. Are we really that fungible? Meaning, are, are we really able to to look at that whole list of derailers and go, you know, I'm first of all, a lot of them are blind spots for people. So the first thing is to really uncover, like, is this really yeah. derailer? And a self-assessment doesn't usually do that very well because it's a blind spot. So you can't assess yourself and being weak in that because you don't know you're weak in it. But um, is feed forward enough? Is, is, is getting people's advice enough to say, okay, I'm going to change that? I mean, I, I know as an executive coach, I help people change that all the time. But without some kind of support like that, can I really identify a derailer, which is hard in and of itself, and then shift it? Um, I think it's very difficult, to your point, to self-identify derailers. If we could do that, we'd probably all be far better leaders and managers. Right. But once you have some help, and I'm a big fan of Hogan. I don't sell Hogan, but I'm a big fan of the Hogan assessments um, to help do that. Um, I think once you have that insight, to me, it's the most powerful insight most leaders are ever going to have about themselves, which is, look, there are 11 ways that are proven that you might screw up your career. Here's right. how likely you are to screw up your career on each of these. Uh -huh. If you don't want to screw up your career, why don't you pay attention to the ones that you're most likely to engage in? Right. So, yeah, self-assessment, although we have one in the book actually written by Dr. Bob Hogan of Hogan Assessments, and, and it's quick and easy. Um, it's quick and easy. If you're right. going to do it the right way, then take take the study. And lots of other firms offer that as well. Right. Um, but I do think we could do no larger favor for human beings across the world than at age 22 when folks come out of university, mm -hmm. give them a derailer instrument and say, hey, instead of wasting 40 years of your career trying to figure out what you're good at, not good at, here are the ways you're likely going to mess things up. Start not doing that now. So, and let me ask you one more question about derailers, because we, we all work, you know, you work in organizations, I work in organizations, and cultures are super, super different in organizations. Though, if you actually ask Marcus Buckingham, he'll say cultures don't exist. And we were in that conversation, which is kind of interesting. But my experience is cultures exist, and cultures are very, very different. And so what may be a derailer in Citibank may actually be an enabler in consensus, you know, which is a super decentralized, amoebic kind of organization. And so isn't, so when we say, you know, to your point about helping college students figure out their derailers, are they that universal to the context or are derailers context specific? Are, are they contextual? Absolutely. Are they absolutely contextual? I would say no. So let's take one, uh, one of my derailers is reserved. So for your audience who isn't familiar with, the, with that scale, reserved is kind of a very introverted um, dimension. Someone who likes to work alone, isn't especially social. Now, is a little bit of that bad? No. So there are probably some environments where, yeah, you're a little bit quiet, not a big deal. 
but at the at the extremes, which is where derailers matter, actually probably in no environment is hiding in your office, not interacting with people, surprising them with stuff that you're working on. Is that ever going to be an acceptable outcome? Right. So most derailers, and the reason that most of them, it's you know you don't worry until you're in the 90th percentile is because, yeah, they're just kind of personality elements. Yeah, Mark's kind of quiet. So Let's up to a point. So let me, let me, I don't want to stay too long on this, but you keep saying stuff that, that really engages me around this. So, so this is another thing about self-assessment, which is that you might say, you know, I'm really reserved and that's a problem. And yet here you are writing multiple books on screen with me doing a podcast, very dynamic, very engaging. And so your view of what it means, like, like, is that really a derailer of yours? Like, it, it doesn't seem like it's derailing you and that it's holding you back. And so should you be focusing on other things as opposed to reserve, which I don't know. I don't know that I agree with you that that's a derailer. Well, we haven't gotten to chapter six yet, have we, Peter? We haven't. Okay. So you want to reserve the right to answer that question in chapter six? I, I will reserve the right to, to speak more about that in chapter six. I will, okay. not, I will even um, uh, hint at the title. Okay, so so um, step three, grow yourself faster. Grow yourself faster. So this captures what a lot of us in the human resource field take for, for granted, but most average leaders uh, don't know, which is simply big, juicy, challenging experiences are going to grow you faster than anything else. Right. And while that sounds really intuitive, how many leaders sit down and plan out what are the next four big experiences I need to have to rapidly uh, grow in my career? And so there's, and, I'm guessing that there's a piece to that too, because ultimately that might suggest that 10,000 hours is right and you have enough experiences, you'll grow and you'll be great. But I think one of the, one of the criticisms of 10,000 hours and one of the criticisms of just having big experiences, it may not just be the experience. It might also be the reflection and the engagement and what you're learning from it and, 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 and how you push yourself in that. Is that, am I thinking about this correctly? Yes. And yeah, 10,000 hours has been completely debunked. I'm not sure if I have that in chapter eight, but if you I do, okay, there we go. Um, so does practice make better? Sure. Um, but the raw material on which you practice matters a lot. And to your point, practice without active feedback doesn't matter much at all because then I simply play the violin badly for 10,000 hours. But um, so when you say big experiences, isn't that practice? Uh, it's practice, but I, in the book, I think we also talk about you need to hear from people. How did that experience go? Right. Um, was that successful? What did you show up? Where did you show up strongly? Where did you show up weakly? So it is uh, experience, feedback, experience, feedback, experience, feedback. The bigger experience and the more honest the feedback, the faster you're going to grow. Got it. Okay. Step four, connect. Connect. Um, again, I'm going to go back to as an introvert, I'm not good at this, but the science is amazingly clear. This is incredibly powerful. Now, some folks think, oh, that's playing politics. Cool. It's playing politics. Guess what? The science says people who do that better win. Now, it really applies to, to two main groups. One is managing up. Mm -hmm. And that's where a lot of folks get really nervous. So I want to be, want to be that kiss up. Well, you know what? Some people simply are friends with their boss. Um, they go out and have a cup of coffee with their boss or they they ask how their weekend was. That's not being a kiss up. That's called building a relationship. Uh, so the science is really clear. Managing up uh, is important. Managing your peers is important as well. So peers can't necessarily promote you, but they can certainly drag you back down. And so what I talk about in that chapter are very specific strategies. How do you build that great relationship with your boss and your peers? 
And for those folks who aren't good at it, like I'm not good at it, literally charting that out. What's the strength of that relationship? Um, how am I going to improve it? And really calling out if, let's say, a five-point scale. If you aren't at a four or a five with all your key peer and superior relationships, the next two weeks, have a cup of coffee, a lunch, a meaningful personal connection to get all those up. How do you help people uh, get over the hump that some people may feel uh, which I see in organizations all the time of the sort of competitiveness between colleagues and like, yeah, you could, uh, uh, you know, like arguably look at us. Like we're like, I, I feel very supportive of you and we're kind of, in, and, and I feel that from you too. And we're sort of in the same industry and we could be competitors. So how do you help people shift the mentality from co- competition to collaboration and connection uh, it, and as they network in with peers. Sure. Um, I think there are a few things to think about. One is in most organizations, we don't have the exact same job as our peers have. So let's say in, in my reference point would be human resources. Um, if I'm the head of talent management, there's a head of compensation, there's a business partners out in the regions. We don't have the same job. Right. And so we can cooperate without my appearing uh, to to kind of want their job or to step into their territory. Right. So part of it is there should be some natural ground for cooperation. Right. Secondly, if we're all, let's say we're all going for the same job above us, we can still play nicely together. And in my view is more transparently, let's say, Peter, you and I are both going for the CEO job. Great. Let's have a cup of coffee. Hey, Peter, I know we're both going for this job. Um, we, we get along well. So let's each work really hard to win. And I'll congratulate you if you get it. And you congratulate me if I get it. I'm convinced, but my question is: Is that all? It, does all it take to have that conversation? I mean, again, I don't. You, you're looking at the science. So I don't know if the science says anything about this, but in order to shift people's mindsets around that, does it just take hearing what you just said, or is there something more that needs to happen well, to shift? Hearing, that hearing what I just said, and then 100 interactions that reinforce that, that Peter's not going to screw me over uh, in the competition we just talked about. Right. Got it. Step five is to maximize your fit. Maximize fit. This is one that I find to be incredibly powerful. We teach this in our, our Talent Management Institute. Understand where your company is going and the changing needs it's going to have so you can get ahead of those. The good news is that companies move in really predictable ways. Mm-hmm. So companies kind of move through the little life cycle. We outline in the book four basic phases. And if you can predict where your company is going, and most mm-hmm. of the time it's not that difficult, um, you can say, hey, the needs that my company has today, let's say I'm in an entrepreneurial company, the needs my company has today move fast and, and, and hate bureaucracy and uh, you know, have everything be fluid. Well, as we get larger and more complex, some of those capabilities actually won't be as valued and some new ones will be valued. Right. Great. What are the new capabilities that will be valued? Start building those now. Because if you are a brilliant entrepreneur and your company moves into more of an operational phase, you're the same wonderful person you always were. You just don't fit as well, meaning you likely won't be seen as as high potential going right. forward. Right. Step six uh, is the one you wanted to get to. Fake it. Fake it. Why uh, you sometimes shouldn't be so genuine. Sure. So uh, I think the authenticity movement has, in some folks, over-rotated a bit to say, uh, whoever I think I am is the authentic me, and I need to show up as whoever I think the that me is. Uh, science would say, actually, folks who are more chameleons and who are going to walk into a room saying, 
what does this room need from me right now to for me to be effective are going to be much higher performers and people who kind of blunder into that room saying, I've got a point of view about what the right thing is to do and here's what it is. So I'm curious if there's some place in between because I know people, maybe you do too, for whom that um, mentality really contributes to imposter syndrome. Like they come in and they're like, what do you, first of all, what do you need me to be? And I'll be that. In which case it's very disingenuous and maybe you're saying disingenuous isn't bad, but I think I become less trustworthy if I'm whoever you need me to be in the moment. And I also become, I'm less sustainable because I'm giving myself up in order to please you. So in my parlance, when I'm talking about leading with emotional courage, I talk about being connected to yourself and connected to another person equally and at the same time, I'm not losing you, but I'm not losing myself either. And, sure. and, and some of what you're saying with the fake it can appear to sort of say, I'm going to let go of whatever I think of myself. I'm just going to be what you need me to be in that moment. And, and that might further distance me from who I really am and erode my confidence because now I, I've sort of lost a sense of who I am at all. I would say there are plenty of, plenty of happy middle ground there. Um, so let's start with the assumption that we all have a few divots that could be filled in. Right. Um, do you want to walk into any given situation saying they should appreciate my divots as much as I do? Um, or if you're in a consulting role like you or I am in, you might think they don't care about my divots. They're expecting someone who interacts like this to show up. In that instance, faking it is a brilliant strategy. It's not saying I'm going to be the fake me or I'm going to have no values or standards walking into that conversation. But what it might mean is, and I use this example all the time, I think you know Marshall Goldsmith. I know Marshall Goldsmith well. Marshall is, I think, the most brilliant person I've seen on stage in my life. And so when I need to give a big speech and I might not be up for it that morning, I literally play Marshall Goldsmith, you know, not his content, but his affect. And I say, not what would Marshall Goldsmith do, but literally get into that actor's mindset. I'm Marshall Goldsmith up on stage. Good morning, everybody. How you doing? Now, is that the genuine me? No, that's not the genuine me. What does the audience need at that moment? They need Marshall Goldsmith. And so faking it for that one hour allows them to have a brilliant experience and to say, hey, that guy's pretty good. Right. Now, do I walk off stage shaking everybody's hand? How are you doing this morning? No, because I'm exhausted. Um, but I faked it for that one hour where I needed to fake it. Right. So that's an example of saying, yeah, they don't want an academic looking at their shoes and mumbling to themselves in front of them on stage. What they want is someone dynamic and interesting. So I'm going to fake being that guy. Step seven is to commit your body. So this one – Doing the research surprised the heck out of me. So my thought was, I am going to, searching through these thousands of academic articles, find one that says that exercise is conclusively proven to be the one body-based secret to high performance. And I read lots of articles, and I did not find a single article that said that. Um, so my excuse for going to the gym was just gone. Um, but what did almost every well-written article say, well-researched article? Unfortunately, since I was prepping for this book at one o'clock in the morning, I can tell you. Yeah, uh, sleep is the secret. Um, and we hear a lot about that, but we hear it almost in like a sleep hygiene. Oh, we should all sleep more hours. It's like, yeah, I get it, but big deal. If you want to be a high performer, how do you think about that? A one, let's separate sleep into two components, quality and quantity. Because what the research says is quantity is far more important than quality. Not that you can get by in four hours a night, but 
five hours of high quality is better than eight hours of low quality because it's that low quality sleep that affects what we call our executive function. So our ability to reason and, and, and be more strategic and interact. So one of the challenges with sleep is it's not as controllable as exercise. Like I could decide to go on a run or not decide to go on a run, but I can't just decide to sleep eight hours. I could, I could decide to be in bed for eight hours, but I can't decide that those eight hours will be quality sleep. How do I manage around that? Well, and again, the research here is exceptionally clear. So some of the things are, are ones that your, uh, your listeners have probably already seen online. It's things like no caffeine after two or three o'clock in the afternoon, cold room, dark room, maybe keep the pets off the bed, um, no device reading ahead of time. So those are all the types of things that are hopefully in, uh, in combination so, powerful strategies. So I do all of that. I have a technology closet outside my room. I never drink caffeine. Room's cold. I sleep with an eye shade, all that stuff. And I still wake up in the middle of the night and my mind starts going and I start thinking about things and it's very hard to just go back to sleep. Well, that's the um, the undercutting part of your brilliance, Peter, is sometimes that, that huge mind just overwhelms your ability to sleep. Or a very, very busy mind. But it's still, it's like one of those things where it's interesting when you know that there's something that you should do, but you're not, like you, you, you break this up into the flexible 50% and the fixed 50% and all of these things, setting goals and behave and develop yourself and network and manage your sleep are all in the changeable and I think there are things that are changeable. Maybe that's the message, which is that there are things that are changeable about all of these, but it's not necessarily that the entire arena is changeable. Yeah, I think especially on sleep. So to your point, I can control if I set a big goal or not. Now, there might be extraneous factors that affect whether I achieve it or not. Right. Same thing with sleep. I can do all the right things to prepare myself and prepare the environment I'm in for a great night's sleep. Right. Does that mean that every uh, night's sleep will will be great, but hopefully on average for most people, they're going to get some incremental benefit from that. Great. Mark, it has been such a pleasure having you on the show. Mark Efren, eight steps to high performance. Focus on what you can change. Ignore the rest. We skipped step eight, but that step eight we talked about early on, which is just stop listening to everything else and do these seven things and you'll be okay. Mark, thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you, Peter. Love the conversation. Take care. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and thanks to Claire Marshall for producing this episode. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.